Let me ask as the band is moving off the platform a quick question. Do we have any envelope Christians among us? Anybody? Now, truth is, you probably have to be over the age of 45 to even have an idea of what I'm talking about here. So let me explain what I mean by it, and then you can answer the question. When I was a boy growing up, actually at this church, I, this was my childhood congregation, uh, my mom and dad would send me to Sunday school on a Sunday with an envelope in my hand. They would do that. Now, my dad would put part of his offering into my envelope. I wasn't generating a lot of income then, and so he would write a little bit on that, and he would send me to Sunday school, and this extended on into my teenage years, and I couldn't help but notice that on the envelopes there was a checklist. You can see an example of it on the screen. And especially as I move into my teens, I couldn't help but appreciate, you know, they're trying to get me to do something. For example, on this checklist, first of all, I ask, are you present? Now, I would check that, even though sometimes mentally I'm not sure I always was there, but I would nevertheless check the box. It would ask if I brought my Bible, which I would make a point so I could check my box to take my Bible. It would ask if I, would, if I had read my Bible daily. Now, that was asking a little bit more of me, but from some weeks I would work hard so that I could check my box. It asked if I studied my Sunday school lesson. If I did, I could check my box. It asked if I was going to be giving an offering. Well, my dad was, so I would go ahead and check for him. And uh, it would ask if I was going to attend worship, which I certainly intended to, so I would check the box. See, in my mind, as I was doing this, I was identifying myself to be a good Christian. Now, here's the question. Is this what makes a good Christian? Is it? Now, truth be known, there were other things that were impressed upon me as a child or a teenager growing up in the church that never made the envelope list. Uh, these are largely things they wanted you to do. Some of the things they didn't want me to do were also emphasized consistently. For example, I wasn't supposed to to cuss or swear. Uh, I wasn't supposed to, to drink or smoke or chew or run with those that do. Um, they tried to emphasize a sexual purity where I wasn't supposed to have sex outside of marriage. So again, they were saying, again, you, you maintain a, a sexual purity before marriage. All of these things were impressed on me. Now, it wasn't on my envelope. But I knew it was an expectation. But then again, is this what makes a good Christian? I mean, if we were to develop a kind of envelope in 2020, now here's our envelope today, basically, I ask you where you want to support, direct your support. There's no uh, inquisitive questions about how you lived this past week. But say, just for example, we were going to develop a new envelope to reflect what some might consider to be a good Christian. What would be on our list today? Have I listened to a Christian podcast this week? Or read a Christian blog? Or have I prayed for someone this week? Or have I, even better, have I helped someone would I be able to check my boxes? Uh, am I wearing some Christian garments of some sort? Uh, 
dare I use the word swag, son? Do I, do I wear a, a wristband or... Uh, no, I've already ruined it. But in our culture, there is this idea that you wear shirts or hats or, again, maybe wristbands. Or if you really want to go all in, you put some ink on your arm, right? You, I was always impressed when I would see someone put a Greek word uh, tattooed onto their arm. That obviously means that they're a good Christian, does it? Let me flip the question slightly. Is this what makes a Christian good? Now, that's not the same question. Now, some might even argue that this envelope form of Christianity was simply trying to point you to the marks of spiritual growth. They're trying to move you forward so that in your life you're displaying some actions that reflect faith and growth. But the second question really, I think, exposes what's going on in our hearts. Is this, by doing these things, are these things what make me good? Now, this is an important question for you to answer. This is the concern that the Apostle Paul has for some of the believers in the church at Colossae, that they had kind of bought into a thought or a thinking that suggested that you, in a way, make yourself good. And that's a problem. I want us to look at what Paul says to us at this point, and I, I think it will be helpful probably for all of us if we'll consider his message. Now, let me warn you, we're going to be reading a lengthy passage. So if you struggle with staying awake, go ahead and find it in your Bible. It may help you just to focus in in a way that keeps you even further alert. Um, but it's found in the book of Colossians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Colossae, where he's trying to encourage believers like us to be able to live out the Christian life, to, to follow Jesus in ways that really reflect his presence in who we are. Now, if you're with us for the first time today, our congregation, throughout the month of January, we were reading through this small little book over and over and over again. Some of our members read it six or seven times. We were reading a chapter a day and just asking God to help us understand. And so what I'm about to read, some of you are already very familiar with. Now, the question is, as you've been reading it and reading it, did you really grasp what he was trying to point you toward? If you found Colossians, look at chapter 2. And I want us to begin reading a couple of verses that hopefully all of you already know quite well. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6. Now, he's writing to people who have chosen to believe in Jesus. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And we've talked about this verse before. He's commanding them to do this. He really doesn't see this as optional if we're going to live our lives the way Jesus wants us to, to live it. He says what you need to do as you've received Jesus by faith, you need to be actively walking in Jesus by faith. It needs to be a part of who you are. And then he elaborates by what he means by that. You're rooted, meaning you're drawing life from him, and you're being 
built up in him. See, who you are becoming, in essence, is flowing out of who he is. That's where your life is being generated. And he says, as that's happened, what is seen is you're established in the faith as you were taught. Need I remind us all, the Christian life we're describing here involves a process of learning. It doesn't just happen because you went to one service. Oh, I've got this figured out. No, it's a process of time in all of our lives. We keep learning this. And as we're living this life in Christ, he says, what happens is your heart becomes full. You find that thanksgiving just kind of flows out of that. You're abounding in thanksgiving. Now, we've discussed these two verses now coming on six weeks in various ways. But they lead us to a concern that Paul has in verse 8. Now listen to the concern and see if it's not something that we need to be concerned about. He goes on to add, see to it that no one takes you, speaking to the believers, captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and here's the key, not according to Christ. Now Paul is concerned that the believers in this church are being misled. His concern is that some have entered into the congregation and they've begun to teach them things, now stay with me, that's taken their eyes off of Jesus and focusing their attention on something else. Or even more personally, what these false teachers are attempting to do is to take their faith off of Jesus and to redirect their faith back on themselves. See, when you think about envelope Christianity, part of the problem with that is the focus isn't on Jesus, the focus is on you becoming good, doing various things that make you good. Paul says, be careful. Don't let someone come in and take your attention off of Jesus. Why? Verse 9, for in him, Jesus... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I don't know if this is your first time with us in a service, but we are unashamedly followers of Jesus Christ. We believe that he is God incarnate, that Jesus came not just to give us a better way by example, he came to make a difference directly in our lives. And Paul, in this wonderful verse, reminds this church that it's in Jesus that the whole fullness of God dwelt. Now, he states that in chapter 1 and verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul never wants us to be confused about who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh for our sake. He reflects the very fullness of God. Now, that Paul had explained before. What he adds in verse 10, though, should widen our eyes. He says, and you have been filled in him, referring to Jesus, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, some translations have, have been made complete in him. The word actually in Paul's language was, you were filled to capacity in Jesus Christ. 
Now put verses 9 and 10 together and consider what Paul has just declared. He says God's fullness dwells in Jesus. We get that. And Jesus now dwells in us, in you. Now that is what mystifies me. I have no problem appreciating that the fullness of God is seen in Jesus. Sometimes I struggle with grasping that the fullness of Jesus dwells in me. He actually dwells in me? Now, again, through the month of January, we read through the book of Colossians over and over and over and over again. Into the month of February, those of you that have been attending, we've been reading through Paul's letter to another church, to the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. And if you've been joining us in that reading, did you notice in chapter 3 that there's a prayer that Paul voices on behalf of the believers there? Paul's always praying for other believers, which is, I think, a wonderful example on our part. But listen to what he prays because it falls into line with what he just explained to the Colossians. Ephesians 3 verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that, here's the petition, according to the riches of God's glory, God, he, may grant you, those who are believers in Jesus, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now here, let me just amaze us for a moment, if I, if I may. In the Gospels, there was a man by the name of John who was baptizing people as they were returning to God, and he was preparing the way for Jesus. And people were actually, because of the nature of John's ministry, asking John, are you the Messiah? And John said, no, no, no. It's not me. I baptize in water. But the one who's coming after me, he will baptize you in the Spirit. Now the word baptize is an English word that is taken out of the Greek language. The Greek word is baptizo, which means immerse. So John is saying, now I'm immersing you in water, but you need to mark it down. The one who's coming after me, he's going to immerse you into the life of God, into the Spirit. I just mentioned that because if you notice what Paul is praying, he's praying that these believers who have trusted in Jesus will begin to increasingly experience the very thing Jesus came to do, which is to bring about this life of the Spirit in us. He's immersed us into this life. We need to recognize how to experience it more personally, more Fully. Again, listen to his language to the Ephesians, that according to his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. There's a power in this with the power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he continues the prayer, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There it is. See, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus because of one's trust in Jesus. Jesus now dwells in us. How did Paul say it to the Colossians? Verse 10, you have been filled in him. Now let me 
expand your thinking on that, if I may. Don't imagine yourself as an empty vessel, just kind of separated, and God's just kind of directing the flow of his presence and life into you individually. Don't think of it that way. Imagine it this way. Imagine the Pacific Ocean as representative of God and his spirit and his life. And imagine because of your faith in Jesus, he's taken what was an empty vessel and he's immersed you now into the reality of who he is. See, you're being filled up, not in isolation from other believers. You're actually, as believers, we are all immersed into this spiritual reality, this life. And Paul, his concern is that as believers, we, we don't fully understand that and we're not living in the beauty of that. We, we've settled for something less. And so he's saying, I, I want you to know you've been filled in him. And Jesus, realizing as you've been immersed into that life, now he's the head, he's in charge, and he has authority. And so we appreciate that. And then Paul elaborates even further in terms of impact. And in him, still referring to Jesus, as you were immersed in him, as you were filled in him, you were, now this is the part that's going to kind of cause us to scratch our head, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, it'd be all right to admit, those of you that have been reading Colossians, every time you read that, you thought, what? What does that mean? I've been circumcised by Christ. What in the world does that mean? Well, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but let me see if I can simplify it in a way that all of us can appreciate really the beauty of what has been described. In the Old Testament, you had the practice of circumcision, where it involved the physical act of the cutting away of a portion of flesh. I'm not going to go any further than that. But it was intended to be an expression of faith and a testimony to the covenant relationship that a person in the Old Testament had with God. They had the cutting away of the physical so that their life with God might be more fully recognized and seen. Well, Paul, drawing from some of this Old Testament imagery, probably because some of the false teachers were actually demanding that these Gentile believers be physically circumcised, Paul said, no, you don't have to go there. Because you see, in Jesus, you've been circumcised in a much more significant way. That through Jesus, as you were immersed into his life, Jesus, God, cut away from your life a, a body of flesh that was negatively affecting your life. Now, when Paul refers to the flesh in many of his letters, what he's pointing to is kind of a, what we would describe as the, the predisposition towards sin, our sin nature. That in all of us, there is that leaning towards sin that we were born with. But Paul says something amazing happened when you trusted in Jesus. He changed things for you. You were, using his language, spiritually circumcised. 
And because that happened, you're no longer the same person. Now, let me clarify what Christ's work towards you achieved. Basically, it's this. When you trusted in Jesus, Jesus freed you from sin's domination and reign. See, when he's talking about this act of circumcision, this is what he's trying to help you to realize has happened. He's cut away that domination, that control, the reign of sin in your life, because of Jesus, has now ended. Jesus did that. You're not the same person. As soon as you trust in Jesus, you are not the same person. The circumcision of Christ has changed that for you. Now let me be clear. When I say you've been freed from sin's domination, what that implies, all of us were basically slaves to sin. There wasn't much that we could do about that. That's just kind of where we were. Then Jesus trust, we trusted in Jesus. He, he removed the chains. He set us free. The problem is, having been freed in Jesus doesn't mean that we're freed from sin's influence. And that is the problem, isn't it? I mean, imagine a person who's been freed from sin's domination, but they've lived most of their life influenced by sin, and it takes a while for them to mentally and emotionally and spiritually appreciate, you know what, I don't have to do that anymore. That doesn't happen overnight. That's why he talks about we learn these things over a course of time. But here's the good news. As soon as you trusted in Jesus, something changed. You experienced a spiritual circumcision that has altered who you now are. Jesus did that. That's what Paul is trying to do. To help us to see. Now, once more, let me say, if you find yourself still stumbling around in sin, that's not an indication that Jesus hasn't set you free. It may be an indication that your focus has been misdirected in some ways, and you want to rediscover in fresh ways how Jesus can move us more and more and more, day by day by day, into a life that's pleasing. Never perfect, but pleasing. But go back to what Paul then adds, verse 12. He's talked about Jesus in the circumcision, having been buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him, Jesus, from the dead. Now let me see if I can help you understand Water baptism as compared to the baptism that Paul's describing here. When a person believes in Jesus, and I hope that's you, by the way, the Bible says he immediately immerses you into the life of God. He baptizes you, as Jesus is able to do. He introduces to you a spiritual reality. And when we put our faith in him, what happens is we are now joined in him, meaning we've been joined in his death and we've been united in him in his life. That's the language Paul's using. You, you now have access to the powerful working of God to affect you. You have been joined to Jesus because of your faith. And water baptism doesn't achieve that 
It illustrates it. See, as I baptized Anna a little bit earlier, by placing her into the water, didn't bury her with Jesus. Her faith in Jesus joined her to his death. And when I lifted her up out of the water, it didn't magically cause her now to have a new life. No, her faith in Jesus, as he immersed her into the life of God through his spirit, affords her the privilege of a new life. And so what we do in baptism is we're illustrating that they're buried with Christ. And by faith, they're raised up to walk in a newness of life. And how amazing is that? Let me stress, Jesus did that. God did that through his son on your behalf. Paul goes on, and you, verse 13, speaking of believers, if you have trusted in Jesus, this is Descriptive of you. You who were dead, notice the tense, past, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, referring to the domination of sin in the past, God changed your situation. God made alive together with him, referring to Jesus, having forgiven us, and I love this, all our trespasses. So how did this work? Well, when I trusted in Jesus, though I had been dead and trapped by my sin, Jesus made me alive. God, through his son, made me alive so that I could begin to experience the life that he has for me. One of the things that often stands in the way of us Moving toward that is the guilt that we have about our past, right? What did Paul say about your sin? All of it because of Jesus. Forgiven. And just in case we had some doubters, he throws in, in the very next verse, a further word of encouragement. By canceling the record of your debt that stood against us. Now, Paul throws himself into the conversation because he's grateful for the forgiveness of God. That stood against us with its legal demands. Now, I love the description. He cancels the record of debt. How many of you carry around your list of regrets? Past failures, past sin, constantly kind of dominate your thought. I'm, I'm just a horrible person because I said this, did this, acted in this way. Paul wants you to have a visual picture. He has listed all of your sin, the worst of them. It represents the debt you owe God in terms of judgment. You know what Jesus effectively did on your behalf? Canceled it. Settled it. And he set it aside. What's lost in our English Bibles is the way Paul expresses that verbally. He set it aside once and for all. It's a verbal form that's called the perfect form, which is emphasizing something in the past that continues to have present and continuous impacts into the future. And so he said, now when it came to your list that all of us carry around, he took it, canceled it, set it aside. Now if he did that, don't you think it's time that you do that? 
See, what Paul's trying to do is to have us look at at the cross of Jesus. He's reminding us of what Jesus was willing to do on our behalf when he went to the cross. He didn't die just as an example. He died because we needed a savior. And through his death, according to this testimony, he was able to forgive all your sins and to cancel the record of your debt entirely. He takes it out of the way. Now, there may be more than one person today that needs to be reminded that Jesus has done that for you. He doesn't want you to live in the shadow of your guilt. He wants you to live in the light of his love. And what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient for the worst of your moments, for all of your sin. Maybe we should pause and give thanks to God. Would you join me? Father, I acknowledge, apart from Jesus, I am a sinner worthy of judgment, but because of Jesus, I am forgiven. And I am thankful. Amen. See, Paul wants you to see the difference Jesus makes. He wants you to understand the impact that Jesus can make. Now, let me stress, as you think about what Jesus did on the cross, you do need to understand that it's your faith in Jesus that appropriates that. Just because Jesus died for the sins of the whole world doesn't mean that every person has experienced that. No, you have to respond in faith to Jesus. You do have to trust in him, believe in him. But the good news of the gospel is when you believe in him, your faith in Jesus appropriates everything that Paul describes. It appropriates God's work of salvation toward your life fully. I'm fully forgiven. And any record of my past debt or even future sin, if you want to move in toward, toward tomorrow, Jesus addressed that. We should be a grateful people, shouldn't we? Verse 15. We could stop there and throw the party. Paul doesn't. He, God, through the death of Jesus, also did something more. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Now, he's not talking about uh, the Romans or the Jews in terms of the authorities. He's describing how the death of Jesus on your behalf not only dealt with the guilt of your past, he wants to affect your present and future because you see, what Jesus sufficiently did on your behalf was secure for you the very freedom that I've been describing, that Jesus did all that he did so that you can live in that. See, I think sometimes all we do is dwell on the past. But see, Jesus' death certainly affects the past. But please know what Jesus did for you on the, on the cross affects your present, affects your future. If you just open your eyes to him, realize something amazing happened. 
because of what he did, and it can affect what you do this week. If you would just open your eyes to him. Now, it's at that point that Paul tries to bring the practical application forward. Therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on your questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. See, what the false teachers were attempting to do was to cause the believers to focus on rules, dietary rules, religious days or religious duties. They're focusing on things rather than on the one who affects the difference in our life. Don't misplace your focus, Paul would say. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, some translation has, have, has the word reality. The reality belongs to Christ. The apostle was concerned that some genuine believers were being misled to focus in ways that don't really help. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. The King James Version says, beguile you of your reward. The term disqualify really does emphasize kind of uh, robbing you of your prize. Don't let that happen. Insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensual mind. I mean, these false teachers were not only trying to impose a set of rules on these believers and requiring them to focus on the rules, they were also suggesting that they needed to have some subsequent spiritual experience that somehow elevates them with God. And Paul would say, what? How can there ever be anything more substantial than what Jesus has already done for you? Don't look for some visionary encounter. Focus on the one who through his death and resurrection has altered your life forever. Don't become super spiritual by pointing to some subsequent activity because this group, as he exposes, verse 19, are not holding fast to the head, who is Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. I know you're getting mentally tired, but stay with me at this point because Paul's kind of bringing us to this crescendo. He says, you're going to have people that are going to point you to rules or lists or religious experiences. And what they're really doing is they're trying to pull your attention away from the one who is the source of life. You need to hold fast to the head who is Jesus. Knowing that it's in that act of faith that you spiritually grow. He generates life in you. So you just focus on him. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. I mean, admit it. Keeping lists makes us look good. It promotes pride. But then, listen to what Paul says, but they, speaking of this approach, 
are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Can I make that simple? Rules do not change the heart. They never have. They never will. See, if we adopt envelope Christianity where we have a list that we say, I got to do this, this, and this, and this, and that's what makes me good. Again, you can have some outward reformation, but it doesn't affect inner change, transformation. Rules don't do that. Now, let me be clear. Rules do have a purpose, a role to play. Some of you might be listening to me at this point and say, well, wow, this is cool. We don't have to think about or consider anything that the Bible says about behavior and life. And No, that's not what Paul is suggesting. Now, he is exposing the false teachers in, his, in this congregation, but Paul would never go as far as to say that rules don't matter. In fact, in the Old Testament, Paul would explain to the Galatians that the law in the Old Testament actually exposed in us our need for Christ because once we saw God's expectations for life, we realized we're totally insufficient to live up to that expectation. And so we needed a Savior, and God sent Jesus. But as he sent Jesus to address that deep need, follow me, Our focus is now on Jesus to affect our life. And the rules simply kind of point us in a direction that gives us understanding. But the issue is our focus isn't on the rules. Where's our focus? Our focus is on Jesus. Because that's the key. Really, if you read chapter 2, the issue with Paul is focus in this chapter. Don't place your focus on that which that doesn't change the heart. Now, practically done. Those of you that are reading in Ephesians, did you notice there are times where Paul kind of rolls out some lists? Did you notice that? It's not on the screen, but listen to what Paul writes in chapter 4, and you tell me if this isn't a list. Verse 25, Therefore, having... Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with this neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, would you say that that sounds like quite a list? And I would say that's a list that we would want to have in front of us. But here's the key. Do we focus on the list or on Jesus Christ? See, that's the same thing. No, it's not. 
It's the difference in allowing Jesus to affect you as you move forward accordingly as compared to trying to do it as if Jesus is a spectator. We need to relate to Jesus personally. See, when you read Paul's letters, and many of you maybe have noticed this, when he writes to churches, he will spend the first chapters just talking about Jesus. Sometimes we refer to them as the doctrinal sections of the letter. He's just pointing us where? To Jesus. It's about Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus is who we need. And once he's sufficiently laid that out, the last couple chapters in his letters begin to offer some lists of how we can move with Jesus forward in life. But again and again, what Paul would say, keep your focus on Jesus. Choose to walk in Jesus. And so I leave you with Paul's appeal. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Will you do that? Now, if you've been attending, I've been providing a plan of action uh, in our connections week after week after week. If you notice this morning, there's no list. I didn't want you to be distracted. I want you to be focused. Now, I would still suggest, why don't you read a chapter of Ephesians each day this week, but focus on Jesus. I would still say, why don't you come to him in prayer and ask him to fill you with his wisdom and spiritual understanding concerning the people and circumstances you're about to face into the day. Ask him, but keep your focus on Jesus. And even more, why don't you ask him to help you encourage someone else in the faith? But even as you would make that your petition, you keep your focus on Jesus. And if we will live this week with that spiritual understanding, I can't help but think our hearts will be increasingly full so that giving thanks to him will be much more natural. Will we focus on him? Let me pray for us toward that end. The band is about to come forward. We're going to give you a moment where you might respond to Jesus in a fresh way. We've covered a lot of theological ground today. But the question now is where will we focus? Will we focus on the one who is our source of life, the one who has changed us, forgiven us, is in the process of making us who we can become. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would now spiritually bring each of us to the place where we need to be. In all of our lives, that may vary. But the need, really, the basic need is the same. We need Jesus Christ in fresh ways today. Help us to focus, renew, to follow. Father, in these remaining moments, I pray that you would encourage us, help us. We don't want to leave the service unaffected. Speak in ways that we hear. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Some of our members are here at the front to pray with you, to encourage you, to support you. 
If you feel like you just need to pray about something, they're here for that. Would you stand? Let's respond to Jesus now in ways that we mean. Let's focus on him and experience life in him in fresh ways.